Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so excited to share this episode with Liz Deneau with you. I also want to send a big deep breath this fall. I have been teaching on a cart at two schools and it has been a lot. If you're feeling overwhelmed with teaching through this continuing pandemic, I'm with you. You are not alone. Let's take a deep breath together. and sending some air hugs and contactless high fives like I do with my students. Liz Deneau is making incredible artwork while teaching with a focus on contemporary art in a rural Arizona high school. I loved getting to learn more about her work and the ideas and processes she pursues as an artist. She talked about leaning into her intuition and the incredible paths that leads her down. Her striking visuals have so much depth of form and texture, as well as meaning and history. She talked about her childhood as a biracial person and how she's been digging into the history of the black half of her family and processing through her artwork. She's able to create work that is both deeply personal and so connective. Liz also shared her experience working with the Art 21 Educators Institute, which provided resources, connections with fellow art educators, and methods for sharing contemporary work in the classroom. She offered helpful insights into teaching with a social justice lens in a conservative district, which echoed what I hear again and again, build relationships. Getting to know your students is so vital. Elizabeth Deneau is an artist and art educator residing in the Sonoran Southwest. In her artistic practice, she is continually influenced by narratives of human perseverance, vulnerability, hidden histories, and power dynamics. Elizabeth works in a number of mediums, which are often inspired by her time as a fashion designer. In an attempt to connect with her ancestors, her current work is a series of sculptures that revolve around the unspoken, buried, and erased histories of the antebellum South and their reverberations throughout generations into modern culture. She teaches contemporary art and culture at Marana High School in Tucson, Arizona, while working with local community organizers and colleges to develop practical models of social justice in art education. Her desire is that her students will be able to see themselves better represented in the art world and be inspired to pursue their own artistic journeys. She is currently a 2023 MFA candidate at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Let's hear from Liz. I am talking with Liz Deneau today, and I'm excited to get to know you more and hear more about your experience. And I love to just start with that background. Could you kind of talk us through how you got into both art and teaching? 
Well, first, it's great to to be talking with you. Yes. <laughs> so I've worn a ton of different hats. You know, like most artists, we start from a young age. I grew up pretty poor. And so mm-hmm. when you're poor, you're resourceful. So in my like teens, early 20s, I was making my own clothes, something that I had done throughout my school age because I couldn't really afford new clothes. So I would try and find ways, some of them disastrous, to like refurbish (laughs) old clothes. So that eventually evolved into a clothing line, which in my late 20s was called Siobhan Clothing. And it was kind of like bespoke just I would paint on clothes. It's probably more artistic than commercial at that point. And then I moved into doing it full time and had a line called Candy Strike. And the most important thing about Candy Strike for me was that I made clothing from extra small to 4XL. Um, Mm. And I made it myself. I had some wonderful interns and I had an assistant But for the most part, it was, you know, kind of a one woman show. And I did that for Mm -hmm. a couple of years. And during that time, I was also painting. I I was a painter. And that often translated into the clothing that I made. I also screen printed on fabrics and those sorts of things. But after a while, you know, (laughs) making the same dress 100 times is just like, it's too much. (laughs) So I, I quit. I it was too much. I was you know, working 16 hour days to just barely stay out of the red. So I went back and I was like, okay, I, during that time, I had also been before I went full-time working throughout the school system. I've always worked with youth. I I was a social worker while I was doing Siobhan clothing and I worked with kids in crisis Mm -hmm. and group homes. And so kids education and art education had always been like kind of this like secondary force throughout what Mm -hmm. I was doing. I started programs at a youth center called Scrappies out here in Tucson, Arizona. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I, to be honest, I was very like broken by the experience because fashion design is one of those things where you can look really successful and not make any money. Um, And it was, it was an exhausting, you know, venture. So Mm -hmm. I went back and worked in uh, an HR office at a school district, which was kind of new for me. I was usually in the schools and I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, I I would watch the HR office was on a high school campus and I would watch the kids. And I just really knew that I was not, I was in the right place, but I was not in the right department that I wanted to be teaching art. So I went um, back to school at 37 to get my bachelor's and get a certificate so I could teach Mm -hmm. in uh, K through 12 classrooms, teach our education. Um, And Mm -hmm. when I, you know, the program here at the University of Arizona is called Art and Visual Culture Education, and there's a studio Mm -hmm. component. So I started making work in the studio and kind of fell in love with printmaking and those sorts of things. And it really just kind of re-inspired my artistic practice. So it was kind of, mm. it, you know, I, I guess the artistic practice before then was like fashion design, but it was also fashion for profit. So it was, it was jumbled. So mm-hmm. I just kind of gave myself some space and started making work. And then I started teaching. So it's only recently in the past three years that I've fallen into mm-hmm. what I feel like is 
kind of this marriage of my history in fashion design and 3D design and drawing. So it's it's kind of manifested in these like kind of sculptural assemblage looking things. Yeah, I'm looking at your sculptures and they're just incredible. And I love the connection between like, you know, you have paintings, prints, and then sculptures, and you can totally see the thread that ties them all together, which is also impressive. I feel like that's not always an easy thing to do to work across media and have it still be cohesive and like it all tells a story and it all fits together. Thank you for that. I don't always feel that way. So it's like kind of the (laughs) continuation of just trying to congeal these, all these different things. I have a lot of different interests, you know, Mm -hmm. I might not be doing sculpture forever, but right now that's what I'm obsessed with. But I also love to print, so... Yeah, and it's so interesting hearing the fashion background, too. Just, yeah, just how that ties into the art making now. And then I'm curious how that might tie into teaching, too. Well, I, where I teach now, I teach in a rural high school outside of Tucson. And I think that element really came about, I developed a printmaking program there. And, you know, printmaking is really popular with kiddos. Once they figure out what it Mm -hmm. is, (laughs) they don't always know. You tell them printmaking, (laughs) anybody really. And they're like, what? You know, what is that? Yeah, what is that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The minute you say t-shirts, you've got like 16 year olds hooked. Like what? (laughs) So... It does manifest a lot in in the printmaking class, but also, you know, in my, I teach advanced art courses, so advanced and AP and intermediate, and a lot of, especially in AP, I like to introduce, I only teach really contemporary art. I Mm -hmm. don't teach intentionally the westernized European canon, like uh, the classical Mm -hmm. canon, unless I'm teaching it through contemporary art. And that's like another component of my teaching practice and artistic practice of decentering whiteness and white supremacy Mm -hmm. in the classroom. So I have a a focus on social justice and maybe critical race theory in Mm -hmm. my classroom. So a lot of times I will show them contemporary work from, but they will be designers, you know, we look Mm -hmm. at Virgil Blow and, you know, older, rest in peace, amazing fashion designers that kind of straddled that line between fashion and, and art, mm-hmm. like Alexander McQueen, he's a favorite of my students. So, and mm-hmm. I'm still very influenced by those things when I'm creating as well. And I think it, I think it manifests most in the, in the sculpture in that mm-hmm. a lot of my former work Well, I guess also the process. My favorite stuff to do when I was a fashion designer is I would find these old um, dresses, like this vintage stuff, and I would rip it apart and make it new. Like Mm. I would print on it, I Ah. would reconstruct it, and I'm really kind of doing the same thing with the sculptures. So, Mm. so it's like almost like the same process. Wow, I think I just realized that now talking to you. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. Does that so in your sculptures? Are you starting with some object that you've like I'm curious because I you know there's these sort of busts mm-hmm. <laughs> for yeah um, are those totally created or those are so I'm yeah. no they're uh, the, most of them I'm trying to think some of them are created from scratch like the ones that are mm-hmm. mostly the ones that are not busts so virtue mm-hmm. is of <laughs> 
the uterus <laughs> and the, like the yeah. playing children around it. That one was created, the the actual, you know, form of the uterus was created through clay and wire and wood pulp, actually. But when you're looking at the bus, what you're really looking at is an object. Maybe it's a mannequin head or something that I found. And what I do is I, I might cut it apart. I strip it. And then I build on top of it. So the faces that you see are my creation. They're not what the bust, uh, what the mannequin head originally looked like, but I build on top of them. Sometimes I cut things out of them and then I adorn them. So that's where that like kind of assemblage part comes. So I am working with found objects a lot of the time. That's so interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And how that ties into working with, I mean, sort of the same thing, like you were saying, the found dresses that you would then remake. Yeah, Yeah. I I have a thing about taking existing objects and reworking Mm -hmm. them in a way. (laughs) It brings me a lot of pleasure. I'm not quite sure why, maybe just because, you know, as a kid, that's something that I would do is the things that I had Mm -hmm. in my house. If I you know, wanted a cool new backpack and we couldn't afford it, you know, I might paint it or do something on top of it to make it look different from the backpack I had last year, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just kind of an ingrained, like, uh, creative process for me. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I was also, maybe this is a stretch, (laughs) but it was, it was making me think, taking an existing thing and reworking it, trying to, you know, make it better, change it is somehow to me, there's a connection there in what you were talking about with teaching, you know, not teaching the Western canon, teaching it only through contemporary art, really focusing on critical race theory and push like moving away from this existing white centered world we live in. (laughs) (laughs) And reworking it, remaking it. Yeah, I guess making it so that it's inclusive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think I think that would be correct. Yeah. Yeah. Look at you teaching me stuff about my (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's something that, you know, I I love to hear about and talk about and just like I'm constantly learning from other educators how to do that better. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I'd love to hear if you have any sort of, if you want to share some of your process in teaching, like getting into more of the nitty gritty, how would you connect, make those connections for students? And do you have any sort of like, I was going to say favorite projects, but I don't, I know that we don't all teach that way. Like I've kind of gone back and forth between more student centered versus more like teacher-led project-based teaching. But yeah, I guess if you have any advice for other teachers around that topic. Yeah. So I would say that right now, and you probably know this as well, being an art educator, there's this paradigm shift that happened a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. away from discipline-based arts methodology. Mm -hmm. and, And now we're into this kind of art and visual culture, which also has a social justice you know, threat in it, right? Because it's, it's based a lot around contemporary art. 
And contemporary art talks about contemporary issues. And it's scary for some art teachers, you know, I've had a lot of conversations and sometimes arguments (laughs) about, you know, (laughs) teaching contemporary work, it can be kind of scary, it can be confusing, depending on what artist you're looking at. And so when I first started doing this work, I immediately sought out resources. And I actually was picked to be part of what was it, the 2018 cohort for the Art 21 Educators Institute, which oh, awesome. I suggest anybody, if you feel like doing this, you should. It is amazing experience. I have resources and art educator friends all over the country now internationally. And it really helped me break down contemporary work into like, you know, that whole chunk and chew, like little bits that make, you know, where you can lead those connections. But I do teach um, projects, right? Like those, those kind of more teacher guided projects where, you know, there's some freedom. And I try to mm-hmm. give them a lot of freedom and materials. I introduce them to a lot of different materials. But there is a there's a point, say, maybe in my intermediate class where I'm trying to guide them so they can start seeing so many kids come to us with this very narrow vision of what art is supposed to be and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And so I spend a lot of time guiding them through different projects to kind of get their feet wet and playing with contemporary methods and, and materials mm-hmm. and get yeah. them out of that headspace that, you know, everything is hyper realism and it's all painting. It's all, you know, it's all mm-hmm. this 2D stuff and then generally I start letting them loose you know Mm -hmm. and we by the time they're in my advanced class they're looking at it's more about how do you visually portray what's in your head how do you talk about something using visual language like your own Mm -hmm. what is your visual like what is your visual language what does that look like and so I, I use a lot of Art 21 resources for that, actually, because they're just brilliant. And they have a lot of resources for educators. Mm-hmm. The scary part about teaching contemporary work is that social justice element for a lot of people. Because you're afraid of what a kid might say to you when you show them The Miraculous Sugar Baby by Kara Walker, mm-hmm. right? You're just like, okay, right. what are we... Okay, what what is this kid going to say? You know, my district Mm -hmm. is incredibly conservative, whether you teach westernized canon or if you teach contemporary work, if you're going to teach that and if you're going to have a thread of social justice or any sort of race theory or anti-racism in your classroom, the very first thing you have to do is know your students. You have to build relationships Mm -hmm. with each and every one of them. It can't be a passive thing. I this year's harder, but last year I could tell you something about every single one of my students. And I think that it might be easier in high school. You know, as art teachers, we have the nice, we have the privilege of walking around our classroom and helping students. Whereas, you know, we're some, some disciplines, I think you're kind of stuck, you know, t- teaching, you know, like a uh, formula or something like that. But a lot of my time is here's a demo. This is, you know, Mm -hmm. how we do this. And then walking around the room and helping students. And during that time, it's prime for me to get to know who they are. If your student respects you, they're going to respect the content that you're bringing towards them. And they're going to think about it more if they trust Mm -hmm. you, especially. And if you make it known that 
the art room is a safe place for you to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and for you to explore these ideas, you know, even if you don't understand them. So I give them a lot of freedom. And one thing that I think if you're interested in using social justice or uh, any of these kind of practices in your work is really letting the artists speak for themselves mm-hmm. and then asking your students, so what do you think about that? Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, we might watch something yeah. on Jordan Castile. There's a wonderful Art 21 video and she talks about her practice going through Harlem, I think it is, and, you know, the boroughs and photographing these people that she feels like are underrepresented. You know, the kids are smart. Mm-hmm. They'll tie those themes in themselves and then they kind of take that inspiration with them. It's really lovely. You just have to be a little brave and and mm-hmm. and don't, you know, you don't have to take a stance the only mm-hmm. stance I take in my classroom is things that I will not tolerate, which I make very clear from day one. And then I enforce mm-hmm. it. If something happens that this is a safe space, it's an intersectional classroom. I tell them what that means, that they're mm-hmm. going to be looking at artists. They might not like their work, but they do have to consider it. And that becomes like a, you know, a guiding principle in the classroom. So the students already know, well, it's Miss D, you know, <laughs> it's what she does, you know, and, they they can leave if they don't like it. And, you know, sometimes that happens. A kid's just not like, I have one student be like, well, I'm not really into all this culture stuff. And I'm like, that's cool, dude. It's fine. <laughs> like, that's fine. Just keep drawing. You know, I don't take it personally, but that's, that's what happens mm-hmm. in my classroom. I think that's relationships are key. And then setting mm-hmm. that safe space and enforcing it, not letting anything slide when you hear kids say things or do things correcting that behavior immediately because you got to keep that, that space. Yeah. And then the thing that I, like I've been asked by other art teachers teaching in more conservative areas and I don't ever have really good answers, but just how more how to deal with parents Mm -hmm. if there's pushback. And then I feel like the first thing that my first sort of answer to that is, you know, that you're making sure your admin is with you, that they've got your back. But that's not always the case. I guess I'm curious how you handle that if you ever get parent pushback. And, you know, if it's been sort of a negotiation with your admin, or if they've kind of been right there with you. When When I took over the art program at the school that I'm at now, it was dying. There was like, you know, there was very little enrollment. Classes were combined. And I think the first year of me teaching contemporary works and teaching this way, you know, these kids live in a rural area, Tucson, which is not a very big city, feels like New York to them. So my first thing was like, Mm -hmm. let's get them out of the classroom. They hadn't gone on a field trip in six years. Uh, So one of the things that I think helped me was that after the first year of me teaching, I tripled my class sizes. So they're, the kids talk, oh, we're going on field trips. We're looking at the very first field trip I took them on was to see 30 Americans, which is this traveling exhibition of 30 African-American artists with everybody from Mm -hmm. Basquiat to Kehinde Wiley, right? So Mm, um, seeing those pieces uh, really just is impactful, especially rural students Mm -hmm. that don't get out of these like kind of areas. So I think 
it was kind of like building street creds. And I was nervous. <laughs> like my first, my first month, I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm going to like uh, get fired. <laughs> uh, stuff. And I just kept building those relationships with students. And then at some point I had to say, well, if I get fired, I get fired. This is what I'm doing here, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so I have not had a lot of pushback from parents I actually think that has more to do with my relationships with my students, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. because yeah. I think my students enjoy the content and enjoy what we're doing. So, you know, for whatever reason, they're not complaining about the class or, or they're just intentionally not telling those parents what they're learning <laughs> in the class, you know, which is fine. I, mm-hmm. you know, I do get some side eyes from parents and stuff, but I think especially the printmaking and the field trips and how excited kids get about art that kind of combats that initial response. Although, I don't know. But so developing this program in a year and then having my class sizes triple, I think helped the administration be like, oh, she's, I don't, we don't know what she's doing in there, but it's awesome. So we're just going to, and I was very clear when I got hired, what my practice was about. So they knew that. Mm -hmm. And I was very, I'm just aware of of things that go down in other programs and things like that. So like, I always had kind of an argument back. I was not going to like go quietly into the night if this became an issue. (laughs) Yes. You kind of have to do your homework. And I occasionally would slip an article about contemporary works or our social justice and our education to my evaluator or something like that. But for the most part, building that program kind of showed them that what she's doing is working and kids are excited about art and her classes are exploding. So let's, you know, let's, Mm -hmm. and also I think if you're very clear at the beginning with your expectations of your community and your classroom and the artwork and, you know, it gives kids who are not into that stuff, who are not willing to look other cultures and races and things like that through artwork, it gives them an out like, okay, maybe Mm -hmm. I'm going to transfer out of this class. And that's happened a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So it helps that my admin, my principal and my evaluator, they all support what I'm doing. They come in and they see that the kids are, you know, doing critical thinking at a high level a lot of times as our educators, people think we're just drawing in there, right? So... (laughs) If I know they're coming, I make sure that it's one of those high level days where they're talking about sustained investigations. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's not it's not easy. And I've I've actually feel like, you know, part of it is my tenacity, but also part of it is that I have, you know, the support of my admin. It's not easy to do this work at all. It's hard. It's really Mm -hmm. hard. So I fully understand anybody who's like nervous about you have to kind of be strategic about how you're doing this stuff for sure Mm -hmm. especially if you're a teacher you know like like I am so Mm -hmm. like you know you have to I've had it's not without incident right I've had things I've had Mm -hmm. you know kids carving confederate flags in lino Mm -hmm. I've had this year white supremacy elements like flags and things show up in some of the kids work there's a serious discussion about blackface like you have to be willing to take those head on Mm -hmm. but even if I was just doing 
westernized canon and just basic like this is the golden triangle those things would still pop up but now I have these relationships Mm -hmm. with the kids so when this kid is carving a confederate flag and and his lino I can sit down and talk to him about it and still have a relationship with that student but also teach them something you know when I tell that student Mm -hmm. how do you think this makes me feel as your black teacher you know his eyes got huge he didn't not once because nowhere in his education and his culture at home is this a symbol of slavery, you know? So Mm -hmm. we have to have these conversations. We have to be willing to have those conversations. I just talked a lot, but (laughs) sorry. Yeah, I know, but that's all so helpful and so incredible. And yeah, just building those relationships with students and being able to have the hard conversations, you know, that's amazing like heartbreaking in some ways having Mm -hmm. to have that conversation but yeah just picturing sitting down with that student and you know him having a massive realization that maybe hopefully kind of changes the way he views the world Mm -hmm. yeah that's so powerful yeah yeah, that needs to happen with every every student. <laughs> it does. And it's it's not yeah. easy. Like I totally I listen, this last year I I applied to grad school because I was like, whoa, this is a lot and I need a plan uh, B. <laughs> so like uh, uh this is not it's not easy work. I think the more of us that are doing it, it becomes easier. But you also need to protect yourself as an mm-hmm. artist and a teacher just in general from burnout, but especially if you're doing mm-hmm. this hard stuff, right? It can, it can come for you really quickly and it can, Oof. it can definitely, especially with a pandemic on top of it, it's exhausting. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I hate, you know, you, you mentioned this fear of getting fired, which I've heard again mm-hmm. and again and again. And that just like, it enrages me mm-hmm. and it, you know, it makes me so sad that that's something we even have to worry about. Like when we're doing work that is so desperately needed, mm-hmm. uh, God, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going there. I'm just angry no, about I, it. I feel, you. I feel you. I feel that frustration <laughs> and that anger. I totally feel that. Absolutely. Yeah. And angry on behalf of others because I'm not in that position at all. Like right. my, you know, I'm, in Los Angeles and the schools I work for, the organization I work for is all, you know, offering training around this stuff and really, really supportive. And like, it's expected that we are talking about these things. That's really wonderful, though. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I think that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So great. I just wish that was the case everywhere. I know. It's going to take a very long time, I think. It's Mm, like a long haul. Yeah. 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 And then right now, I'm, I don't know if, like, I'm sure you're aware, there's Arizona actually might be one of them. There's several states that are working to pass legislation banning Mm -hmm. talk about critical race theory, um, using the 1619 project, Mm -hmm. which is so powerful and such a great resource. Yeah. So there's, I've been talking with other art teachers about taking action, trying to stop this. Yeah, it's, it's Arizona, (laughs) Arizona special, Uh, Arizona, (laughs) Arizona is the state that banned ethnic studies successfully years ago. And thankfully, that was overturned and unconstitutional, but it took a while. Mm -hmm. And so 
they come up with all sorts of crazy things. Like just recently in the past couple of months, they introduced a bill that has not passed both houses, but that would state that we have as teachers, any teacher has to put their entire curriculum up and available for parents to see and that we are not allowed to stray from that curriculum. And if we do, the parents can object to what we're teaching. They can object anyways. And I'm just like, who knows what they're teaching a year ahead of time? Like I don't, especially Uh. as art teachers, right? Because most of us are building our own curriculum. It's like in real Mm -hmm. time. So it's just another way to monitor what we're doing. They tried to outlaw mm-hmm. just the term social justice. <laughs> like you couldn't use it. That didn't pass. But yeah, there is there is another bill about it's an element of the critical race issue. But this one feels even crazier to me because basically the bill states that if you're going to teach, say, the Holocaust you have to teach both sides, whatever that means. So like, you also Mm -hmm. have to say, but the Nazis, you know, like, it's just insane. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to present both sides of this historic event or this movement or whatever. So if you're teaching suffrage, Mm -hmm. you have to talk, you have to talk about like the the people who want to uh, continually oppress women and how that's valid some way. It's, insane we're gonna see more of this i just feel like it's gonna continue to happen yeah we're just gonna continue to push it yeah we're just gonna (laughs) it's gonna it's awful it's and it's exhausting it's Mm -hmm. really frustrating and yeah the 1619 project should just be standard curriculum but (laughs) Mm -hmm. we'll see yeah someday maybe (laughs) oh yeah i was trying to dig into some of the arguments in these bills and like why you know what's really I mean I know what's really pushing buttons but like right right. (laughs) yeah one of the things I came I came across with the 1619 project was that it was not historically accurate Mm. and I was like what history curriculum (laughs) is like are you saying now that what they're teaching right now is historically accurate because no it's not not. (laughs) at all (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And who who decides that, right? We've got all these scholars and stuff who kind of set these these standards and these and they all disagree with each other as well. So Mm -hmm. but there's a you know, obviously huge gaps in learning. My Mm -hmm. students, you know, my a lot of my students find out about, you know, historical events and things like that through the artists that I'm showing them. Or this idea, you know, like we do a sound suit project, right? We look at Nick Cave and Mm -hmm. uh, we watch a video Art 21 did about Chicago artists that's really wonderful as the Astro Gates and and Nick Mm -hmm. Cave. And Nick Cave is a favorite in the classroom. Before my students encounter Nick Cave, they don't really understand how what art can be, right? It can be Mm -hmm. costume and can be assemblage and it can be performance it really kind of opens their eye but he talks about the genesis of the sound suit really had to do with Rodney King and mm. the LA riots and my students don't know about it they don't they didn't Gosh. know so then wow. it becomes this teachable thing and it also mm. becomes this like they see this thread oh this is still happening right this is still mm-hmm. this issue is still present so we have discussions mm-hmm. about that. 
you know, even if you're teaching Keith Haring, a lot of art teachers teach Keith Haring, but never talk about his work in his AIDS foundation or act up like Mm -hmm. nothing. And I refuse to do that. I feel like it's a Mm -hmm. disservice to that artist to not talk about that. And a lot of students don't know about the AIDS crisis. They have no Mm -hmm. idea. So, you know, these bills threaten that sort of discussion, but we're going to, we know we're going to continue to make, we're going to continue to kill people if we don't learn from history. And if we keep trying to cover that up, you know, so really art teachers, you're like little soldier warriors (laughs) out there. It's a good fight. Don't give up. But I totally get it. Take care of yourselves. Self-care is is huge. And that's really hard as a teacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's such a balance there. That's tricky. And for me, I feel like my own art making is a big part Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. Like making time for that. Yeah, because it can it. It's a lot. (laughs) It can be overwhelming. Yeah, I I personally struggle with art practice, like my art Mm -hmm. that you know, that the art educator and the artist, right? That mm-hmm. and, and straddling that line is very hard. It's part of the reason why I'm going to grad school, right? Because I don't, mm-hmm. I feel the work that I do as an artist is equally as important as the education. A lot of my artwork has to do with educating the public about things. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, and I know that I feel better when I'm in, I have an art studio, very small one in downtown Tucson and if I have a practice that I can keep, I know that I feel better. Just like if you exercise X times a week, you feel better, you know, it's mm-hmm. a nourishment thing, but I can be f- perfectly honest with everyone when I say I haven't been in my art studio for a full quarter. Like this last quarter mm-hmm. was such a, a crazy world that I cr- I didn't make it into my art studio. I will never let go of my art studio. <laughs> it's going to stay there. <laughs> but uh, it, that I, I'm forever. If anybody ever has the secret to being an art teacher and an artist, I want to know because it's so hard. It's mm-hmm. incredibly hard to to do that. I think a lot of it has to do with setting boundaries with mm-hmm. with our students and our principals and our programs, you know. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And really carving out the time, but there's a there's a balance with carving out time for your art versus just taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. yes. We talked about rest and it's <laughs> uh, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh. Hey listeners, I'm jumping in here because I have an ask of you. If you are enjoying the show, I would so appreciate your support. I'm humbled and grateful for all the interest in this show over the past several months and for the messages I've received letting me know that this podcast has resonated with you. It has been so inspiring to hear from you. Thank you. This podcast does take time, effort, and resources to share with you every week. And I want to, I plan to, keep it going and stay focused on highlighting and inspiring artists who teach, while also continuing to grow this community 
and dreaming up additional ways to help you. One way to accomplish this is through direct listener support. Your support would really help the show and community grow. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take less than 60 seconds. It's at anchor.fm slash teaching artist podcast slash support. You can contribute one, five or $10 per month. If teaching artist podcast is a part of your week and you love what we're doing, please consider visiting anchor.fm slash teaching artist podcast slash support, or just clicking the link in the show notes and supporting us in any way that you can today. And were you back in person this last quarter? Have you been back in person for a while? So, like I said, I work for a very conservative district. There's a, we have an anti-masker on our board. Um, So Uh. we were, nobody in Tucson or the surrounding areas went back as soon as we did. We were in person at the end of October. So (laughs) we were, we were hybrid and then went back, they they went through different stages. So there was some crazy amount of schedule changes that happened. And I think people don't realize when you change a schedule or, you know, any sort of daily ops for your school, it requires the teachers to rework their entire curriculum. Um, (sighs) especially when you've got kids at home and kids in the classroom. Like sometimes my students at home are doing something completely different from the kids in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And of course the kids at home might just decide they want to come into the classroom. So now they're doing a totally different project. And then you've got, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of, you know, uh, transition going on repeatedly throughout. (laughs) So it was a really difficult, difficult year because it was constant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am not a vlogger, (laughs) but I found myself (laughs) doing more tutorials. I bought one of those uh, like arms that you can, you know, put your camera in and film. That was the only way it was really kind of, especially with like print. Printmaking is fun to try to figure out how to do at home as well. Yeah. (laughs) That was, Uh. there's a lot of art kits that I was making and things like that. So it was Mm. Yeah, that's we were in person for most of the year. The first quarter we were uh, remote. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But then back and did it stay hybrid the whole year? Like you still had some kids at home and some kids in person, which is just, you know, adds that whole other layer of juggling. <laughs> yeah, it, it. we were hybrid for the So if you chose to stay home, you could... And we had Mm -hmm. shortened days, you know, they would give us Mm -hmm. shortened days so we can meet with our remote learners after, like, Mm -hmm. you know, after school without staying past. But then eventually we went back to our regular schedule, which was another Mm -hmm. schedule change. And it was, was, Uh. that was crazy. I was like, I've done this for five years now. (laughs) Uh. I am exhausted. Like I've never... So, you know, trying to go into your studio after a day like that is just, it felt impossible. I gave myself 
some room to just say, okay, Mm -hmm. you will have a summer, you will, you will Mm -hmm. be in grad school, so you won't be able to do anything but art anyways. This will happen. Just take care of this right now. I think sometimes we have to be kind to ourselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so are you, will you be starting a full-time like MFA program or will it be, you'll still be teaching and doing both? So I am doing a low residency program, which I think a lot of professionals, especially teachers do do, you know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in eating ramen for another two and a half years. I was like, no, Uh, that's not happening again. Uh, I like healthcare. Still working. (laughs) So um, I applied to a couple of programs. I got into the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And oh, awesome. Thank you. I was surprising. That was a lark. (laughs) But their program is six weeks in the summer and then remote during spring and fall. And so Mm -hmm. that worked for me. So I will be there this summer for six weeks. And it's funny because it's just like, it feels very luxurious to talk about just six weeks of making art and not anything Uh. else, you know. It's kind of Amazing. like a dream. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh. so that's how that program works. And anybody who's interested in getting their MFA, and I know that even art ed courses, like I think Micah has one that is low residency, that's tending to be like most schools have those now. I think it's mm-hmm. a great option for us teachers. I mean, yeah, I'll have student loans for the rest of my life, but whatever, that was uh. going to happen anyway. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Don't even. Oh, oh no. I'm sorry. So it's fine. Yeah. I'm like, oh man. Yeah. 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 I feel like it was very, I, I love how you talked earlier about going back to school and getting certified to teach. But yeah, that going back to school, like there, yeah. there's a cost there. Yes. Yeah. And I never, I never did that. I didn't, I'm not actually certified. I did the full-time MFA, which mm-hmm. was amazing, That's like awesome. two years of just focusing on art. But then I, you know, I finished and I was like, now what? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, what do I do now? Now I have massive <laughs> loans and no job prospects. <laughs> yes. I fully like, understand oh, that feeling. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I would love to hear more about your artwork. And I know we talked a bit about like your process, which is so fascinating. Maybe you could talk about the concepts a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So my artwork, the work that I'm doing now, if you like hit my website or my Instagram, you'll see a lot of sculpture. There is some 2D work. But the main work that I do now started with my own sort of exploration of self. I am Mm. biracial. I'm half black and half white. And my family, I grew up with my mother's side of my family and my father's side was absent. I've never known them. So... So I don't know about the the black half of my family. And, and so mm-hmm. I started trying to figure things out. And anybody who's black and, you know, been on Ancestry knows that there's there's not a lot of historical records. Now, there was a lot of records on my mm-hmm. my mother's side because they were immigrants from from Ireland and the Ukraine. So like, mm-hmm. you know, there was those Ellis Island, you know, census things going on. And I found a lot of information mm-hmm. So I kept hitting dead ends and I was like, you know, I just need to learn more about Mm -hmm. my history 
as an African-American and it might not be my specific history, but we all know that we're probably all kind of cast in this wide net of enslavement and migration and relocation and things like that. Mm. So I started really digging into research historically to kind of, you know, find where I might fit there and to educate myself about my people that I, you know, I didn't have mm. my white family is incredibly loving and accepting and protective. And, mm-hmm. and they taught me everything that they possibly could, especially about the immigrant experience. However, they couldn't teach me blackness, mm-hmm. right? So I didn't grow up with that mm-hmm. a lot. And I also faced a lot of I was a weird kid, right? I was like, <laughs> I was this, you know, light skinned black girl that listened to Depeche Mode when everybody was listening to Tupac, you know, like I, I was this weird, like thing that and I grew up in the hood too. So like, you know, mm-hmm. kids in the hood were like, who is this? Like, who does she think she is? <laughs> like, who is this person, you know? And that, so I wasn't always accepted. And it became a sore mm-hmm. spot for me growing up. And now as an adult, and with all, like, I understand where that came from. So it was really kind of like kind of reconnecting myself to this, this blackness that I didn't know growing up. And so in my research, the first sculpture I ever made was called uh, Metro Le Fou, which means to set on fire or to burn down or something mm-hmm. like that in French. Mm-hmm. And that is on the first page of my website. But that mm-hmm. came about because I read this article about this belief that they have, and there's a lot of them, that, that Black men and women, enslaved individuals on plantations were the braids in their hair and the patterns in their braids actually told stories, sometimes maps Mm. on how to get off the plantation. This idea that this, the braids that they were doing in their hair was a communication to Mm. other enslaved uh, black men and women. And it's not a stretch, right? Because we know about the quilts and the underground railroad and stuff. So I kind of became obsessed with this idea of braids and hair and how mm-hmm. how hair is has been uh, suppressed, black hair has been suppressed and reclaimed and and brought forth, you know, especially with younger generations and right now in in present time, right? It's something to be celebrated. Whereas when I was growing mm-hmm. up, you put that relaxer on your head, your hair needed to be straight. You know, you needed to that was, you know, this kind of Western European beauty standard that was still placed upon mm-hmm. us. And we've kind of gone through it, right? The 70s were in the 60s were a time along with the civil rights movement of natural hair. So it's like thinking about all these connections and how just our hair was a sign of resistance and mm-hmm. and revolt and how amazing that is. And then the ramifications as threads that come in through to modern times. So All I knew was that I wanted to create a bust of some sort and I wanted that woman to have braids that then kind of like melded into a plantation house. I didn't actually know how that was going to work. And uh, that's, that's really how my, how the work evolves is I'll, I'll catch a thread of something, something that I read in an Mm -hmm. article or in some historic text. And, and I kind of know 
what visually I want to talk about, but I don't know how it's going to come together. And this is going to sound real woo woo, but I, I think it's, I think it's legitimate. In my search for my ancestors, I really feel like I'm being guided in this work. Mm. And that's because when I made Metro Lefou, I was creating her, I created her in the classroom. So my students saw, and one of my friends who's the photography teacher, her name is Tina, was watching me and I was just instinctively gluing things, right? Doing my assemblage. Mm -hmm. And I was putting all these pearls on and I didn't know why. I was just, I was like, these need to be here. I don't know why they need to be here. And I was gluing them. And so, you know, she came in, everybody's kind of watching me do this, other teachers too. And she was like, what do the pearls mean? I was like, I don't know. And just, I just feel like they need to be there. And she's like, hold up. Mm -hmm. And so she left the classroom and then she comes racing back in and she's like, so you know about the pearl incident then? And I was like, no, what is the pearl incident? Uh. And the pearl incident is the pearl was the schooner. It was the largest slave escape attempt in the history mm. of, of America. So like 75 wow. slaves tried to escape on the schooner called the pearl during that time. So then it was like, oh, something's happening here. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not really a, a woo type of person, but then I was like, okay, well, even, even if it's like fabricated in my own mind, I still feel like I'm being led to mm-hmm. different stories, to different subjects, to different visuals. So there's an element of, of like research. And then there's an element of like kind of moving instinctually, which is very different for me. I'm mm-hmm. a planner. I'm a Capricorn. (laughs) So that was very, very different for me. And I'm just trying to explore that more. Mm -hmm. So I'm building a piece right now about the Edmondson sisters, which were two very famous sisters. They were abolitionists that were on the Pearl and they're very tied Mm -hmm. to the history of the Pearl incident. So, so yeah, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's also this like kind of undercurrent that's happening that I don't quite understand and I think a lot of artists can kind of relate to that, though. We don't always know what we make, and then it makes sense afterwards, mm-hmm. you know? I think that's so, so true and so powerful to, it's hard to let yourself be instinctual in some places. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm such a planner, too, and <laughs> it's always a challenge to let go of that. But I feel like that's where the best work comes. Mm-hmm. When you, when you can, you know, plan things out to some extent, but then let it be like, let it be what feels right. And what, like what you're drawn to do, just do that. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't yeah, work, and I, tearing it apart, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, don't be, I feel like the best advice I got that I got repeatedly throughout grad school <laughs> was like, don't be so precious. Yes. Don't yes. be so precious yes. about it. I tell that to my students all the time because we we are as artists, like we're kind of wired that way. And yeah. I even make them do projects where, okay, I don't tell them beforehand, but I say, okay, do this still life. Okay, now rip it up. <laughs> you know? And they're like, what? You know, like, what are you no. asking me to do? Um, and I, I definitely need to take my own advice, you know, but a lot mm-hmm. of times, especially with the more figurative work, I feel like those, and it's always of women, I feel like Mm -hmm. they are kind of telling me who they are when I'm making them. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I will talk to my sculptures like a weirdo. I'll be like, who are you? 
what are what are we what is it what are you about like what what facet of my research is manifesting here like who are so mm-hmm. if you know me that's not super characteristic of me to like <laughs> to like give personalities to objects and but I actually do enjoy it it's kind of a whimsical almost childlike thing that I think mm-hmm. we lose as an adult you know talking to our toys creating these worlds and having the objects give us input into who they are in these worlds. That was very natural Mm -hmm. as a kid, not so much as an adult. So, yeah, but that's an interesting thing to bring back. Mm -hmm. And I feel like ties into the, the combination you were talking about of research and really, you know, digging into sort of the historical facts and what happened. And then also letting that, imagination come in and and intuition come Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I haven't got it down yet so ask me in five years (laughs) if I've like figured out this this weird Um, uh, practice that I'm developing (laughs) but well I feel like these sculptures are so so powerful so beautiful and part of it too is like there's the, the adornment that I can see connecting to fashion but there's also like your the colors feel so important and specific mm-hmm. and the way you're using color. Yeah. And then there's so much like they tell stories, you know, you're talking about telling stories to them, like talking to them, asking them what stories they tell. But I feel like as the viewer, they also there's stories there. Yeah, there is a piece yeah. of education that I'm trying to do. Mm hmm. And it, it might not be with all of them. Like the Josiah's cabin is, it almost looks like a layer cake kind of, mm. of structure with a cabin on the top and it has a hand coming out of it and everything's white except for the hand in the door and the light that's coming from within. And that mm-hmm. really is talking about a specific thing. And it's talking about specifically about Uncle Tom's cabin and mm-hmm the whitewashing of that story that Mm -hmm. is really remarkable. Uncle Tom's Cabin, a lot of us read it as kids and it has its own problematic pieces. Like the woman who wrote it was an abolitionist and she was inspired by this slave called Josiah who became a free man, but she never gave him credit. She only occasionally mentioned him, but it was well known that this was part of his story. And that was such a powerful thing. All of the literature coming out about, you know, for a specific purpose of abolition, right? And so after the the emancipation, you know, and, and even during that time, we have minstrel shows, right, that start popping up. And the first minstrel show was Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was done completely in blackface and it had very problematic, horrible stereotypes of slaves and black men and women. And it was not the story of Uncle Tom, but it was a real strategic attempt to erase that story. And it was in this new story that was throughout minstrel shows was that Uncle Tom was like this Sambo, this traitor right? He was Mm. a sympathizer to his white masters and and things like that. And that was not necessarily the story of Uncle Tom. And so 
this was so successful that even today, as a black person, you will hear somebody say, okay, Uncle Tom, right? And they're, mm-hmm. they're referring to being a traitor or being, you know, a sympathizer to white supremacy. You know, it's, it's really kind mm-hmm. of this negative connotation. And if you look at the history of just this one story and how strategically it was whitewashed and changed, it, we took this mm-hmm. person that or this person that was a hero in his story mm-hmm. and turned it into a negative in, mm-hmm. and for, for black people. So they erased the heroism, uh, hero, heroism, let's <laughs> say that mm-hmm. of yeah. this person. Right. And so, you know, if you, if you are an oppressed people, your heroes are what keep you going. Right. Mm-hmm. It's important for the oppressor to make sure you don't have those heroes, right? You don't have mm-hmm. those stories. So it was really mm-hmm. kind of about how this one thing is is a larger, you know, it's bigger than just Uncle Tom's Cabin. We can see that this thread runs through history in a lot of different ways and a lot of different mm-hmm. minorities or oppressed people. And we see that and it's really insidious, you know, it's really, it was shocking to me when I started doing the research, like all of the things that had happened to this story in order for it to come to a negative spot for even black people, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't, I don't even know if they teach Uncle Tom's Cabin anymore. It used to be a big thing, but I haven't heard about it in a while. So yeah. it's it's kind of a rough huh. book too, to be <laughs> You know, it's not an easy text to read. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's about. It's about a specific thing, right? Whereas mm-hmm. Metro Lefou is about all these different concepts of hair mm-hmm. and and things. So I don't know if that helped kind of explain that yeah. kind of content, the, con- the concepts that I'm working with. Yeah, no, I think that's great. It's so, it's so interesting and helpful to hear about you know, working on focusing a piece like you do with Josiah's Cabin versus having a piece that really ties together lots of concepts. Mm -hmm. I think both of those are really powerful. And, you know, it's interesting, too, how in both of those, there's a story, even, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's very, very specific like that, or I mean, there's so many things that are also like very specific about, I feel like I'm going to butcher the way to say the name <laughs> Mitzri Lefou. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was really good. Right. <laughs> I'm not French, <laughs> so you. like I might be saying it a little crappy too. So to, sorry to <laughs> a, any French people. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's just super powerful work. I feel like I feel like I'm going to be seeing this like, you know, maybe this is too much, but say, seeing this in like the Whitney, like this Ugh. is really beautiful, powerful work. Please. <laughs> yes. Bring that to a manifestation. That would be amazing. Yes. yes. Say it out loud. Say it out loud. <laughs> Speak it to the universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is, there oh. also is, so this work that I, I'm doing really kind of revolves around the antebellum South. And when you're digging into stuff like that, it can be pretty rough. You know, there's Mm -hmm. some really ugly stuff that the average person doesn't know about, like Mm -hmm. buck breaking and lynching postcards and all those things. And if you look those up, you know, just be aware that you're going to see some really horrific stuff. But this actually happened to Mm -hmm. people. It was a tenant Mm -hmm. of slavery and white supremacy. So there is another element of work that I do that's just fun. 
And I think that's important. And I'm trying to develop that more like a balance. Mm. There is a drive, like a need for me to create the work around my ancestry and around these hidden histories. But there's also like this kind of fun element. So a lot of times I have a just like a side project called Heavenly Nobodies. And it's just artwork imaged around like music from my youth. <laughs> so mm. it's like really just visuals that I've created around, yeah, around song lyrics, because that, that really drives me. Again, another Capricorn characteristic, I am told. <laughs> um, so, so like there's, there's a painting on the site called Pure Morning of a Young Man, and it's based off of Placebo's mm. Pure Morning. So a lot of it is like mm. post-punk, like British. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from in me, but um, also like maybe some old hip hop because I'm an old person. I don't listen to a lot of new hip hop. So. <laughs> but so like having, yeah. trying to kind of, that's like, I might make prints and sell those, you know, mm-hmm. those things. It's a little different. So I feel like there's different aspects of what I'm doing, but I feel like that piece mm-hmm. is, uh, is kind of a release. If you're doing anything heavy like this, I feel like you need some just kind of fun side art to make, even if it's just in your sketchbook or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that ties into, you know, what we were talking about earlier with just burnout and needing rest, needing to find that balance. Yeah. I think that's, I feel like probably a lot of artists have, I know I have work that I do that's just for me that Mm -hmm. I don't share. That's just like, sometimes it's just fun, really easy watercolor, just playing with colors. Sometimes it's things that I use to get out emotion or get out frustrations Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes Um, yes yeah yeah and even as we talk about it I'm thinking you gotta do more of that Elizabeth (laughs) like you need to do more of that (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for talking through and sharing more of the concepts and sharing your work it's been really like wonderful to look at it and hear more about it. And when when I share the episode, I'll share images. So everyone who's listening, you should check out Liz's website, check out we'll do a blog and we'll be sharing on Instagram. So all of it. Look at these images. They're amazing. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's really a privilege to be able to sit down and talk with, you know, like minded artists about your work. It's really special Mm -hmm. for me. So I really appreciate Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. Before we wrap up, I have a couple of questions that I ask everybody that I think of as like get to know you questions. What are you curious about right now? What am I curious? So many things. Oh my gosh. Like so many things. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Actually, I'm very curious about Okay, so I've, I'm curious about the religions of, of Africa before they were mm. colonized. So I've been looking a mm. lot into the Yoruba religions of Orishas, and which then kind of, you know, translated when it came to the states into what they call hoodoo and sometimes voodoo. Mm. And, and this kind of practice and where it began and that, that religion in general, you know, has, has some really interesting and and beautiful elements. So I'm really curious about that. And I'm also really curious about 
tarot. So I, I find that I use tarot to kind of center myself and kind of think about, you know, most cards will give you something to think about, but I don't always know the history of the cards and stuff like that and, and their full meaning. So I've been kind of looking into that and seeing, you know, it's kind of interesting. So those are some of the things that I've just kind of been tinkering with lately. Yeah. So interesting. I'm curious how it will come out in your work. Probably will, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I'm like, that's going to come up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just a kind of silly, fun question. And I feel like food is such a, like way to, I don't know, it's like there's cultural connections to food mm-hmm. and it's an interesting way to like learn more about people. So I always like to ask, what's your favorite food? Oh, wow. So I think, I think it would be, so I, I call myself the noodle queen. Um, like I love noodles, <laughs> particularly Asian noodles. My husband is mm-hmm. biracial like me and he's, he's Vietnamese. And so mm-hmm. his family, we go to see, they always make pho. Mm-hmm. And just the most amazing, delicious dishes. So I think my mm-hmm. favorite food would probably be anywhere from like pho to like a ramen, you know, with mm-hmm. all of the stuff in it. I like all of the all of the things. But I could probably eat any sort of Asian to eat like a pad thai mm-hmm. any stuff for the rest of my life <laughs> if I had to. Yeah. Uh, so that's my that's my favorite. Uh, so good. Yeah, I just love that stuff so much. Mm. And I'm jealous that you have home cooked pho. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I'm oh. not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And then is there anyone that you would want to give a shout out to or a thank you? I just want to thank my, you know, I have a small grouping of local artists that have we've really been in the art teachers and we've been really supporting each other through this and I just want to thank Andrea Levy which I think you've talked to mm-hmm. he's yeah. a good friend and we've really kind of been holding each other's hands through this Aww. pandemic experience but also you know she's also moving through grad school and I'm starting it and it, it's just mm-hmm. been a really it's just been really great and her artwork is amazing and wonderful and mm-hmm. yeah, I would say check her out. And yeah, thank you, Andrea, for being my art community this year. It's a lot. Uh, yeah. yeah, I love that. And thank you also, Andrea, for connecting us. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yes, that was so sweet. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then last thing, where can listeners connect with you online? So you can go to my website. It's LizDenoArt.com. And Liz is spelled with two Zs. So L-I-Z-Z-D-E-N-N-E-A-U-Art.com. And also you can find me on Instagram, Liz underscore Deno, I believe underscore art on Instagram. And from there, I have links to any other projects that I'm doing So if you look in the bio there, there's a link to Heavenly Nobodies if you're interested in 90s, 90s uh, (laughs) art made around 90s music lyrics and and then Metro the Foo kind of sculptural works Mm. are there too. So you can find me on there. I'm friendly. You can DM me. I'll talk to you about art. I'll talk to anybody about Mm. art for for reals though. (laughs) I love that. Yes. And I will link to all of it as well. 
Thank you. So, yes. Thank you so much, Liz. This was fantastic. Thank you so much, Rebecca. This was really fun. And, and this is my first um, podcast. So <laughs> I was, Yay, it was really you, exciting. <laughs> you were awesome. Yay. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.